Good morning, everyone. It's a very nice day and a great way to start thinking about the growing season ahead, which comes after spring and that's summer. So two good seasons in a row. We're going to love that. My name is Katie. Before I dive into this weekend's message, I have a pastor search update for you. Would you like to hear? Yeah, good. I hope you are that enthusiastic to a couple things I'm going to say when this message comes. Um, We have a team called our Pastor Search Team, and we're in the active process of discovering, finding, hiring the next lead pastor of Crossroads Church. A firm has been helping us. We have been presented with a, a large, robust slate of very talented candidates. We have spent four days in the last two weeks interviewing our way through, in layers, this robust group group of candidates, and our next step will be to go to a much more serious level of interviewing and getting to know who I hope will become the next pastor of our church. So we are asking for your prayers and your discernments as we decide with which candidates to take that much of a deep dive with. I think we have some pretty good discernment and some pretty good direction and some pretty good response. So I would also say about the timeline, um, sometime between the end of June and the end of July, I believe we will be making a recommendation to our church about the next lead pastor. And of course, we have to be courageous enough if for some reason our discernment and wisdom tells us this person is not in this group, we have to be honest about that. And that would mean starting over. However, I would also say that we are very hopeful and very anticipatory that this is going to happen and that we will have someone in this group. So we're looking forward to it. We're excited about it. Our energy level is really high and we ask for your prayers. Thank you so much. We can tell that we have your prayer support. Well, we are in a series that's called The Blessed Life. A question for the room, how many of you believe that there's a spiritual dimension to life? How many people believe in the spiritual dimension? That's good. About two-thirds of the room believes in the spiritual dimension to life. If, if the person next to you did not raise their hand, you could nudge them and tell them that church has started. And we're going to talk about spiritual stuff. We're going to talk about the spiritual dimension of money. So if you would turn, turn to Luke chapter 16, and you could do that in your Bible, you could do it on the app, you could uh, look at the screens, it's in your program. However you do that, get to Luke chapter 16, because we're about to confront what Jesus called the spirit of mammon, the spirit of mammon. The word mammon appears in the Bible only four times. Jesus is the only one who used the term. They all appear in the same Jesus sermon. In the, in the book of Luke, he uses the term three times in that sermon. In the book of Matthew, same sermon, he says it once. Not all our English translations use that word. Not everyone knows what that word means. And there are some other English phrases that start to get at it more clearly. So the term's been changed uh, over time. But when, as we read through this Luke 16 sermonette of Jesus's, I'm going to point out where these phrases about money, where Jesus was actually using that term mammon. So starts at Luke 16, 9. I'll read it. I tell you, use worldly wealth or mammon, worldly wealth or mammon, to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth or mammon, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? 
No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money or mammon. That's the third occurrence. Now, this is the only lesson like this in the Bible, where Jesus is contrasting serving or being faithful to God with serving or being faithful to money. And I want us to understand what Jesus is trying to teach. And we'll do that through the use of three questions. We'll work our way through this discovery. And I want to thank uh, Pastor Robert Morris of Gateway Church, who wrote The Blessed Life, for some of the insights into these three questions that we will work our way through. The first question is, what is mammon? What is mammon? The easiest synonym for mammon is money, and it's pretty close, but we have to look closer. When Jesus taught this, he was reaching back for the Aramaic word mammon, which means worldly wealth or profit. It most likely comes from the name of the Assyrian god of riches. This would have, was a pagan god that would have been very familiar to the Israelites who were listening to Jesus' sermon. The Assyrians were a bad, bad bunch that had terrorized Israel for hundreds of years. They most likely, the Assyrians, got their name for their god of riches from the Babylonians, an even older culture, and you may recognize that name and that group as being those who built the Tower of the Tower of Babel, that's right. And Babel means confusion. Confusion, and then if you add the suffix O-N, the suffix means sown or planted, so Babel on means sown in confusion. And it's easy for all of us to remember what it means because perhaps you know someone who babbles on and on and on and on. And sometimes if they're in an argument with you, they will use their Babylonian talents to confuse you by just going on and on and on to you say, whatever, let's do it your way. If that's you and you're feeling kind of a warm feeling in your cheeks, you don't, you don't have to let us know. Don't touch your neck. Don't touch your face. If uh, you live with someone who does that, don't point at them. Just look straight ahead. Babylon means confusion. Babylonian culture was started in confusion. It grew up in confusion. The Babylonians recognized and believed in God like we do. They believed in a spiritual dimension. Here's the key. They believed they didn't need God. We sang that song, I need you, Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. That's not how they felt. They created their own system to achieve utopia or to reach heaven or to cheat death. They built a tower as the story goes. It would have been something like the Washington Monument or the Eiffel Tower, but it was a human-made system. They were trying to be, to, to be God and to, to save themselves on their own. And when the system broke down, when their communication broke down. So if you know the story, God caused them to speak different languages and they could no longer keep their project going. So mammon is godless wealth. That's the way of looking at it. It's godless. It's like the Babylonian attitude of not needing God. It's what the Assyrian God represented. The spirit of mammon that Jesus is warning about is the belief we don't need God if we have enough worldly wealth. Mammon is a spiritual attitude. It's in us. It's in human beings and human systems. A spiritual attitude toward money that ignores God it's arrogant, it's prideful, it seeks to replace God. And Jesus says you cannot serve both 
that way of being and God. You can't serve both God and this attitude toward money. You can't serve both God and mammon. Mammon is a spirit that's looking for servants, wants to rule your life, get between you and God. It wants you to look for, to money for security instead of to God. And the sad truth is that most of us grew up trying to serve both, but that's a troublesome path because as Jesus says, we'll end up loving one and hating the other. In my simple mind, there is a secular version of this attitude, this spirit, and there is a religious version. Last weekend, Pastor John Smith brought up the religious version. We might call it the prosperity gospel. It's the religious version of mammon. Gospel means good news. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus saves. The prosperity gospel is fake news. The prosperity gospel says that God wants to bless you with money and things and status and comfort. And if you give, you will get those things. It's actually a human-made system. It's a human-made system. It also tells you that having outward success is a sign that God is on your side. Have you ever heard that little side message in the prosperity gospel? The problem with the prosperity gospel is that it works more selfishness and greed into your life because the strategy is give and you'll get. Give and you'll get. It's a strategic plan to get. It appeals to the saddest, smallest, littlest part of our souls that's insecure and feels entitled to a comfortable life and is afraid of not having one. It's actually a worldly message, given you'll get. Now the secular version is exactly the same philosophy, only it doesn't play the God card. And it has a different language. It's in the language of advertising and stocks and bonds and dream homes and vacations and corporate greed. Its message is work hard, earn, acquire, invest, save, achieve some level of security, and go fund your dreams. It's the secular version of not needing God. And here's the sad part. When we serve this system of mammon, either version, the one you hear in church or the one you hear in the news or whatever, and then something breaks down in your life, and that breakdown could be financial, that's really hard. Or it could be something much, much worse. It could be that you lose one of life's very truest blessings, like your health, or the health of your child, or a marriage, or a friendship. And when that happens, we feel crushed by life. And if we do believe in a spiritual dimension, if we are a Christ follower and a believer, but we've been trying to serve both of these systems, we are set up to not only feel hurt and crushed, but also to feel confused and let down by God. And I think that's what Jesus meant when he said, you try to serve both, both God and mammon, and you're gonna end up hating one and loving the other. You could end up hating God. It's one of Jesus' warnings. Because mammon is actually promising you everything that only God can give. Think about it. What are the best things in life that money cannot buy and that God gives and provides? At the top of my list would be security. The security that I'm okay, that everything's going to be okay, that the people and the things I treasure most in life are gonna be okay. That's security. Or what about significance? 
that I mean something, that I matter, that the people I love matter, that the people I love mean something? Or what about the emotions of happiness and joy? Those treasured emotions that when they're operating well in our whole life, they, they open up windows into things we could never have, have imagined. They're so good. Happiness and joy, security, significance, only God can give. But mammon has a different message. It says if you have more money, you can get some of those things a different way. You have more money, people will listen to you. You'll have significance, you'll have position. You can buy clothes and look better on the outside. You can have a stronger body, afford a personal trainer, have a comfortable, nice home. You'll be able to provide the education and the connections and the opportunities so that your children will be secure. Your children will have significance. Your children will be sheltered from the bad influences that are in the places where there's less money. And this lie that more money will help our emotional life, that we'd have less worry We could take a relaxing vacation when we need it, take care of our mental health, where our relational life will get better. Conflicts with your partner will cease or they'll they'll go way down if only you didn't have these money pressures in your household. And then here's another one. Here's the spiritual version. With more money, I could help more people. I've sucked into that one. I've actually sucked into every one of these. But I've, I've got a story for this one. I remember being a young parent and noticing other parents with really great homes. These parents had swimming pools and bonus rooms. And they could have the youth group over to their house. They could have the whole young life from the high school. They could have the, the, the coaches and the sports teams into their houses. Many of them had boats. Many of them lived on lakes. And I remember thinking this half prayer. Do you ever think a half prayer? It's usually something really goofy. So it's halfway a thought, it's halfway a prayer. But mine went like this, God, if you gave me a big house with a pool and a bonus room, I don't really want the boat because they break down. A lot of times they don't start and the kids get cranky and not everybody gets a ride. But I'll take the pool and the bonus room. If I had that, I would have teenagers in my house all the time and I would have missionaries come and stay with me when they needed to be on retreat. I didn't even know any missionaries. I just knew these homes had been used this way for other people. And I knew this was a half prayer thought because coming right in behind it would come a much more reasonable wise thought and that is Katie money doesn't help people God helps people money is not going to get in the way of you helping people helping teenagers helping missionaries Jesus never told anyone he needed more money to accomplish mission No hurting person ever asked Jesus for help. And he said, well, go find that Katie Martinez. She has a bonus room and you could go on retreat in your house and your soul would be revived and more people would be saved. It's not the way that Jesus taught. It's not the way that life works, but we've all been influenced by this type of thinking. We've all acted on it at one point or another to varying degrees. Has anyone ever had a big problem? And one of the half prayer thoughts that goes through your head is if I only had a bunch of money, I could solve this problem. That's the, if I won the lottery, this, is, this problem would disappear. Or if there's a, a, a relative that would give me an inheritance that I wasn't expecting, that money can solve a bad problem. 
I remember one time Dave and I borrowed my parents' pop-up camper and we went on a road trip with a group of friends. Now, my husband Dave is a transportation engineer and Dave does not believe in speeding. And so sometimes his road trip companions become antsy and they begin to have visions of how we could get to our destination faster than Dave can get us there. Well, there was a person in our group who kept making gestures. They would be willing to drive. I am happy to drive. I'll drive all through the night. So eventually this person gets the wheel. And two hours later, after having driven Mach 2 with our hair on fire by 70, this driver in the next lane is frantically motioning to us like someone does when they're like, pull over, it's bad. It turns out that all of the rubber, the rubber caps on all the tires of the trailer had been flying off the trailer as we had been driving Mach 2 in July on very hot asphalt. So we're like, oh, dang, no rubber on the tires. So Dave takes the wheel and we hobble into the next community where we had new tires put on the trailer and Dave pays for the new tires. Now, we were hoping that this speedy driver, I'll call the person Speedy Gonzalez, we were hoping that this person would have offered to help pay the bill for the tires, but they didn't. In fact, they said, well, your parents have got money and they'll just pay you back when you get home. And also made the suggestion that the tires were probably pretty old and cruddy anyway, and that's why they had fallen apart. So this situation with our friends on this road trip was kind of causing a problem in our heads and in our hearts. It was bugging us a little bit. I got home, I told my parents about this and um, I said, yeah, um, we, they're not, my stepdad said, oh, I bet, bet they'll help pay. I said, nah, they're not going to help pay. Um, I said, but this is our problem and Dave and I will take care of it. And I'll never forget what my stepdad said. He said, Katie, you don't have a problem. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, if money can fix it, it's not a problem. And that helped a little bit. It took the edge off of my negative emotions as I continued to process what had happened. But as Dave and I talked about the relational problem, we felt worse and worse about the situation. And as that was happening to me and I would get stirred up and frustrated, another voice would say to me, if money can fix it, it's not a problem. Let it go. But the relational problem just kept stirring around in my mind. And then I had this thought, if money can't fix it, if it's a problem money can't fix, maybe God can. And that opened up my thinking to other kinds of possibilities, which led me to the insight that forgiveness was the fix for this problem. Letting go of my expectations that these friends would see things my way. The fix I needed was God's love and wisdom for something that was much bigger deal than these tires. I needed courage. The fix I needed was courage. Something only God could grow me in at that moment in time and not the courage to confront these people and make them pay, but the courage to face the fact that our friends just operated on a different value system and that there was a limit to how much I could expect from them. Money can't solve our problems. When Jesus called money mammon, he was talking about a negative spirit or spiritual force or attitude that surrounds our money. So that brings us to the second question, is money evil? 
Is it evil? When Jesus talked about it being a negative spiritual force, naturally it makes us think it might be evil. Now you have experienced this spirit of mammon. Here's a side thought. If money doesn't have a spirit, how come money talks? We all have experienced that it's got a bit of a personality. If you start participating in that 90-day tithe challenge, you just might hear voices. Mammon is a spirit that attaches itself to our money. All money has a spiritual quality. It's either tinged by mammon or it's blessed by God. I would say that all the money in your bank account right now either has the light of God's blessing all over it or the spirit of worldly wealth is attached to it. And the way that we redeem our money and we put it into God's service is we give back to God. That part that is God's, that is holy, that's that idea of the tithe. We give it back to the house of God. And then God blesses that for sure. And God blesses us as we seek to be stewards of the other 90% that we're managing. If you tithe, you will become a far better steward of your 90%, a better business person, a better parent, all of that. Because that spirit of worldly wealth is broken when we reach that spiritual point that we're willing to let go of it that we're willing to follow this spiritual practice. And that's the spirit that I want on my money. And I believe that that's the purpose, the spiritual intent that God has in the tithe for us. There's a saying that money's the root of all evil. It's actually a misquote of 1 Timothy 6.10, which really says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. So money's not evil, but the love of money can cause all kinds of problems because there's a spiritual power there. Let's look back at Luke 16, nine, the very beginning of the sermon, and it's actually a super strange statement. Jesus says, I tell you, use worldly wealth or mammon. Use it to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings What does that mean? For many years, I think I misunderstood Jesus's words here. I thought Jesus was instructing us to use worldly wealth. Well, it's got some problems, but here's how you work with it. Use it to help other people so that when you're in trouble, God will pay that forward to you. It's kind of a get out of trouble insurance program. And if that doesn't happen in this life, then at least in the next life, your mortgage will be paid, you'll have an eternal home and you'll be safe. But that interpretation bothered me because it sounded like salvation to me, like salvation or help from God would be dependent on how we use our money. And there seems something a little bit wrong about that. So upon reflection and upon study over years, here's what I think Jesus is really teaching. I think he's saying to take worldly wealth, money, plain and simple, and trust, trust it to God and trust it to God. Return that first 10% or whatever you are convicted to believe is God's property. Return it to God. It goes to the local house of worship. That's the idea there. Now, the local house of worship is charged with caring for the poor and healing the sick and providing spiritual support, providing spiritual education for all ages, all abilities to grow the family of God and to grow up the family of God. That's our job. Give it there. And God will bless that 10%. I think we get what that would look like. And then God will also bless that other 90% 
that I'm responsible for taking care of. In other words, I hear Jesus saying to me, Katie, use your resources to build the kingdom of God. I think that's what he's teaching here. In doing so, you will build a family of sisters and brothers, a whole family. When your life is over, that spiritual family is part of your life for eternity. You invested in it. You helped build it on earth. They're gonna welcome you home forever. You're safe and secure with this group of people. And it makes sense to me because people are forever and that's a consistent message throughout the Bible. So if we use our money to serve God's children with generosity, we will be surrounded by family of God love forever. God is the only one who can take our earthly resources and transform lives. I think that's what Jesus is teaching. God will use it to transform lives. In other words, you will always be safe and secure with true riches if you give. And Dave and I consider ourselves rich with soul friends. We have our church family here. We have our own children and their friends, their circles of friends, their boyfriends. Now a couple of husbands have come into our family. Now we have a circle of in-laws on, on the West Coast and in-laws on the East Coast. And these were brought to us by these new husbands. Sarah and Ryan have lived in Washington, D.C. and in New York City. And our circle of spiritual friends has expanded through both of their local churches. Both of their churches have brought new relationships into our lives. In fact, our daughter Anne found Chris at Sarah's small group in Washington, D.C. So at some point in my life, I think I realized that the core of my calling is creating spiritual bonds. I think Jesus is talking here about money creating spiritual bonds. At my girls' weddings, I knew the message I needed to speak. That everlasting love is more than being married for life. It's dedicating your shared life to building relationships and spiritual bonds with each other for sure, with your children and neighbors and extended family and your church family. I'm learning that one of the primary reasons that I think God instructs us to tithe is to fund the building of spiritual bonds and to also break that spirit of mammon in our lives so that we can direct that other 90% with a much higher relational value than we would if we stay trapped in the cycle of security and trying to make it on our own with enough wealth. And I believe Jesus here. I have no idea about the details of my future. I don't know if joy or suffering will mark the rest of this year. I don't know if I have another 50 years to live or less than 50 hours but I know I'll always be surrounded by the joy of human love in this life, into the next. And this good feeling is never stronger than when I'm leading a marriage ceremony or when I'm working with one of you, maybe when you're losing a loved one to death, your family is gathered around and you're experiencing that sense that people are forever that people are forever. And then when we baptize people, that's another setting when I experience this so strongly. When we look into your eyes and we're baptizing you, I am overwhelmed with the stirring feeling about spending eternity together. I think it's because God can, can transform lives and can make relationships eternal. And that's one of the things that God wants to do with our money. We give, God creates life, your money is not evil. Let's look at the third question, number three. What should I do with my money? 
The answer to this one is simple. Be a good steward of what you have. Be a good steward. And some of you may be thinking, you know, Katie, I have too little of this mammon to even be concerned with what you are teaching today. If I had more of this, then I would be taking notes and I would start one of those blessed life small groups and I would take the 90 day tithe challenge, but you don't understand. I have so little, I don't have much. Please listen to me with an open mind and a courageous heart. If that's your way of thinking right now, that you have too little to be concerned with what Jesus is teaching here, you're missing the point. And until you have a spiritual awakening, you will never have a blessed life. Look at verse 10. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. We all start with very little. In this room, there's a whole range of what we have from very little to very much. But if God can trust us with whatever we have, then the spirit enriches and grows our life until we are able to bless our own family and friends and our church family and our community. In time, your generosity will become an inspiration to other people and will actually influence their attitude toward money. Your whole circle of influence will become more generous and it will have a significant impact on God's kingdom. And it does not matter how much you start with. And that is what I hope and I believe is happening in our church in this season. And that is exactly why we're addressing this topic. On the other hand, if we're not faithful with whatever we have, we will never have much. Not much money, and not much blessing. Look at verse 12. If you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, and that's God's. If you've not been trustworthy with God's property, who will give you property of your own? There's a promise there that God intends to give property of our own. And there's a lot of application for that lesson. I wanna suggest one right now. We've talked the past two weeks about the importance of having some spiritual practice where we routinely give back to God what God says is God's in the first place and how that message is consistent throughout scripture. The tithe is mine and it's holy. So set it aside. Set it aside first thing when you harvest your crops or you earn your profits and wages. Don't touch it. Don't spend it. Don't save it for the future. To do so is to steal it from God. So here's what I want you to consider. Is it possible that one application of this Jesus lesson, this sermon, is that if we are not faithful with God's property, simply that first that we earn, then who will help us earn any more? Who will help us build a house? Who will help us build relationships? Who will help us become stronger in our health or discover our life purpose or our physical health, or, or help us teach that to the next generation. Where will that wisdom come from? How will we build that life if we won't be faithful with the first part? I believe that tithing is a test. I believe that it is the means to stepping out of this cycle of mammon and stepping into the, God's purpose for our finances. It's a life test 
and it's to see what we'll do with the first part of God's blessing in our lives. Finally, let's look closely at verse 11. It says, so if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth or mammon, who will trust you with true riches? It's a little different than property, isn't it? What are true riches? Well, it's real simple, I think. I think it's people and relationships and the very best things in creation, the very best things of what God has created for us. I think we could include family pets and mountains and oceans and life's little pleasures like laughter and tacos and whatever floats your boat. Those things matter to God. But especially, I think, relationships. That's what's most important to all of us, isn't it? Look around the room. These are true riches. This room is filled with true riches. And if you want to try this with me, you could close your eyes and just sit here for a moment in the room and notice your own breathing. And if we sat like this long enough and it got quiet enough, you would hear someone breathing next to you and even beyond. And you can open your eyes. What you're feeling and sensing and seeing is something that will last forever. You are everlasting. Your neighbor is everlasting. Your family and friends and church family, everlasting. And that's why it's so important to give. That's why it's so important to establish this God-driven relationship with our money for as long as we live on the earth. Because giving money and using it well is a spiritual act of power. And that's what Jesus is interested in here. When I give, when you give, life is transformed. Your life, my life, and our life together and the lives of many people we don't even know and we will never meet on earth. What we have been hearing spiritual stories throughout this series. We've been hearing true spiritual stories, faith stories from people in our church. And we're going to hear one right now. So would you help us welcome Jim Sturgis? My name's Jim, and uh, I wanted to start out with a little thing that happened this morning. My son and I were having coffee before we came to church, and he said, Dad, I can't believe you're going to do this. He says, I couldn't do it. I said, well, I can't do it either. And he said, well, maybe you need to start with a little humor, so I guess we'll do that. Uh, talking in front of a group of people is not my ideal situation. I'd rather be sitting in front of the TV watching a sporting event. But I am here today, and I got to thinking, I took speech in high school, and I thought, God, what am I ever going to do with this? I'm never going to speak in front of people. And uh, when the teacher uh, told me I had to speak uh, the night before, I would figure out a way to be sick the next day. Finally, this guy took me under his wing and he said, Jim, he said, when you get up to talk, he says, just imagine somebody out there sitting in their underwear. 
So I tried that, and the person that I put out there in my underwear was myself. And that turned out to be more scary than getting up and talking in front of everybody. So that's why I'm here today. Uh, I started coming to this church on Christmas Eve 2005. These two people sitting right here had the service that night. And if you've been here on Christmas Eve and you see the last thing where we light the candles, it's an amazing, amazing thing. And when Gwen and I, my wife, walked out that night, we said, I think we've found our church home. We hadn't been in a church service for over 20 years and came here one time and knew this is where we belonged. For the first five years or so, and the ones that have been here, John, Katie, Dennis, they knew that I sat in the very back row in the bleachers up there. I came here because I loved it, but I sure didn't want to get involved with anything. I would come, Gwen and I would stay, leave, and be happy to come back the next week, but we didn't want to do anything. The offertory basket would pass, and I'd drop a few bucks in each Sunday, and I think I'd done my duty. Well, after about five years, I saw the generosity and the giving of time, effort, money that everybody was doing here. So I decided to join the Usher team. My wife became a, in the child ministry, she gives child care back there. She's done that for years. So anyway, I'm more involved now. So I get my backside out of the back row of the bleachers and move to the front row. And I think that's going to help. Well, around this time, we thought, well, maybe we should give a little more mon monetarily to the church because we see the good that is going on here. But to me at that time, 10% was an impossible task. There's no way that I could do a tithe. So what we did, Gwen and I, we decided on a certain amount. And each month after that, we decided to increase our weekly giving by $10 a week. And within a year's time, we were tithing or more than tithing and actually didn't see any difference in our income in our household. What we did see was the generosity and the good things that were going on in this church. Uh, you know, they say that giving, God gives back many times more than what you give. And in my case, that was true. But the biggest thing that I get out of it is every Sunday when I come to church, my grandkids go down the hall to the children's ministry. I know they're going to be loved and they're going to be taught Jesus' love for them and the plans he has for their lives. Uh, I also see uh, other things that are going on here. Over the years, uh, I work at a car dealership here in Loveland, and they, in turn, saw the generosity of this church. So for years now, they've had, when we do stuff the truck, we do stuff the truck out there. When we do Christmas tree here at Christmas time, we get toys, truckloads of them, and bring them in for the kids, simply because the dealership saw how generous we are at this church. They also are a big sponsor of Project One uh, and uh, have enjoyed that for several years. I've seen plenty of other signs of generosity here, support, encouragement, prayer, a kind word from the greeters as we walk in the door every Sunday. 
my small group, uh, we started a small group here about five years ago. And uh, the people that are in that small group are some of my best friends. And through their generosity, the generosity of the church, and some of the lowest points in my life in the last four or five years, if it hadn't been for that small group in this church, I may not have made it through those last four or five years. I can say that Gwen and I enjoy giving way more than we enjoy receiving. And that's something that I've learned from this church, the generosity, and we are so grateful to all of you. Thank you. Well, Jim is on our church council and he is our treasurer. And Jim is an astute business person and he's very wise and he cares very much about the financial position of our church and how we work with our budgets and all those things. He cares about those things. And what I appreciate the very most about Jim is that what we hear from him most, the kind of coaching he most gives to us is not about our books and it's not about our financial position, but it's about our hearts of generosity. He is always the champion of give and not give and you'll get, but give to build the kingdom of God. That's the message. <laughs> well, I mentioned a couple of times that 90-day tithe challenge. And if you weren't here last weekend, you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. Pastor Dennis Anderson brought it up. John talked about it a bit. Let me tell you what that is. There's a card in your program about that. And here's what we're doing. Um, call us crazy, but we want to start a tithing revolution in our church and we're excited about it. And we're very serious about testing this principle of tithing because that's what God instructed us to do, test me in this matter. And so we've come up with this. We're inviting anyone who wants to for a three-month period of time that starts on June 9th and September 7th, whether you've already have been a tither or you've never tried this before, this is gonna be a bit like a little club of people who, who do this together. And we're gonna do it together for those 90 days. And here's how the challenge works. You give the first 10% of your income to Crossroads for the next 90 days. And if at the end of those 90 days, you would say that you have not experienced God's favor or God's blessing on your life, we will give it back. Now, it's not a gimmick. The give it back part is just, we believe in this and we think we can have a tithing revolution start in our church by a, a bunch of us, a critical mass of us trying this all together and we believe that God will change lives. We have confidence in that. And what kind of blessing will we receive? Well, God only knows. It will most likely be a surprise and it will most likely be a whole cluster of things that you never even thought of happening. Could be financial, maybe something entirely other. And how you participate is you fill out the card because we need to know that you opted in and got started before the 90 days started and that you tithe through the 90 days. You don't have to tell us the amount because that's not what matters. That's between you and God. The idea is that you're participating in it. And then at the end of that, that time would end on September 7th. And I, you can fill that out online also. Many people have already done it online. So give that a think, give that a prayer, not a half thought half-baked prayer, but a real deep think and a real sincere prayer. And I have total confidence that God will direct you in your steps. I'd like to pray for you. And then our team's going to come and we're going to sing together. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for every soul in the room.
Thank you for uh, the eternal quality of every single life that's here. We thank you for the gifts and talents you've given every person. We thank you for the relationships that you've built in their lives. And now I would just invite all of us to sincerely ask God, as we usually do at this point in the service, Holy Spirit, what are you speaking to me? And just be aware, you might already know. You may have heard it at an earlier point in this service, or maybe it's something that will come to you later. But this we can know for sure, that if we wanna grow and change, and we ask God what the next step is, God will tell us. Lord, give us open ears and courageous hearts to hear what you're saying, and may we experience your grace and your power as we take risks and as we step out in good faith. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.